Today, we have Andrew Zhao with us. Andrew is a graduate from UCLA and is a co-founder at Kona, an emotional intelligence platform for remote teams, which was a part of Techstars in 2020. He's also previously worked at Apple. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. How are you? Doing great, doing great. So let's get right into it. How, what have you been working on recently? What are things that uh, you've explored? What's Kona? Tell us all about it. Tell you all about it. Wow, that's a that's a really broad question. Um, let me try to give the best uh, the best summary I can as to what Kona is, and then I'll kind of update you guys on our current progress. So um, Kona is the emotional intelligence platform for remote teams. What that means is we really believe that great team cultures are built on top of great habits. And we think it's our job to come in and help facilitate building these habits, not just in middle management, but also in every single individual at an organization. Um, and we do this through gamification, through a lot of different things. And right now what that looks like, we're still an early stage startup, so we can't have too many habits you know, built in or anything like that. Right now what that looks like is a single habit called regular green. Um, it's a really, really simple concept. So basically every morning, uh, Kona will check in and ask the team how they're feeling. And they can report. There's a lot of other functionality, a lot of other, uh, you know, customizability stuff that managers can add to their teams. But we kind of see this doing two things. So first, of course, it's a great way to get that data. So we kind of see it as an iceberg in the sense that, like, at the top, it's such a simple check-in feature. But underneath, we can do things like we can detect burnout. Um, we've discovered that, like, longer-term trends can lead to that kind of uh, that kind of activity. Uh, there's a lot of check-ins available. We do a lot of uh, smart calendar notifications. So if you're going into like a weekly retrospective where more than half the team is feeling yellow or red, uh, Kona will alert you. Um, there's a lot of different smart things that Kona does with this data. And while it's just a single check-in, it's incredibly valuable data um, because people are honest. Uh, and it's because um, it's on a team level as well. And the other side and the arguably more important side is the culture building aspect. So we've discovered that uh, even just asking this question leads to creating a culture of vulnerability. And that's something we really, really believe in. Uh, what that means is um, even prompting for this question, we've, we've learned that if a team has like 85% greens, um, it's actually a really bad sign in the sense that it's an indicator that there's a low level of trust, a low level of psychological safety, um, and uh, the team culture just isn't there yet. So what we do, and this is super, super simple, is we, t we just tell the manager, like, hey, in the first three days, you have to mark yourself as a yellow or a red. And uh, what that does is it's just a subtle way of saying, like, it's okay not to be okay. So what we've seen is we've seen incredibly siloed teams knock down those silos and start talking to each other, start building those relationships. One example is uh, there's a customer success team where everyone was feeling super individualized. Nobody was feeling connected at all. They installed Kona. We gave, uh, we had the manager do all the best practices and people started talking. People felt more connected. It's like an asynchronous water cooler uh, conversation in a, in, a, in a channel. So in a nutshell, what we do is we create these habits and we help teams knock down silos. We help teams create amazing team cultures just within their Slack. And we've been able to do it with one habit and we, there's no doubt in my head that we'll be able to do it a lot more. Yeah. So something that comes to my mind is 
like when did it brought when did the idea for this product come to your mind was it like before covid or was it like after covid because like it's like remote teams focused i went on the website and it was all about like managing remote teams because like people aren't together so what was the structure because slack was being used uh from earlier as well so yeah yeah great question so um i can give you the long story or the short story but we did start before covid yeah that makes sense so once the idea came to your mind like just start start working on remote teams so you must be like pretty happy when like covid happened and like it, it, you you knew that everything is going to like uh probably for the for, for the business side of it you must be like pretty happy because like everything is changing into remote teams people are thinking about not bringing people back to the offices and changing the entire culture of their teams so what is your stance on that what was that transition shift from like when you got the idea and then like immediate boom in the industry and like everything is going to explode in like the remote team space yeah great question so um so there's two aspects to this question i can answer the first part is our journey and how we handled covid and the second part is what covid has done to our business so i'll start with the second um so i think covid is a um covid was the catalyst for teams to realize that they didn't know how to do remote So kind of how we thought about it is as soon as covid hit everyone was scrambling to get their tactical um tools on board so optimizing their slacks you know um getting their zooms up getting these virtual offices we see these all, all as incredibly tactical tools and that was the case for a couple of months people were really struggling people were fighting over these kinds of tools things like that but now we're seeing a we're seeing a transition to people caring a lot more and more about something that's deeper than just how do we get our teams online and that's how do we keep our teams happy so now that people have adjusted to remote work um it's it's now about how do we optimize remote work and how do we make remote work something that's sustainable and something that people want to do and that's where we come in so that's kind of how it affected our model it didn't necessarily hit as soon as covid started and also our timeline was incredibly it it didn't really line up with covid that well at all um but uh yeah so that's my answer to the second question so the first one is um how we kind of approached things so our story basically um and how we started was this was all the way back in i don't know this was all the way back in like i want to say like spring of 2019 so way before anything hit um and we had an idea for as you mentioned it was an idea uh and the idea was we wanted to figure out how to apply personality to uh to workspaces and long story short we tried a couple solutions we spent hours hours and hours on it and nobody wanted it like we couldn't get it to sell so what we actually did was um after that summer we decided to go back to the drawing board and we decided to just talk to people um and uh that's when covid hit by the way in the midst of us talking to people we didn't let, uh, write a single line of code until we talked to like 50 people because we really wanted to get it right and i think the big um the big lesson from all of this is that and i think this is something that a lot of student uh, a mistake that a lot of student entrepreneurs make is that a lot of builders are really technical and technical people tend to go toward a solution think that solution is amazing and look for something to apply that to that's exactly what we did right but the problem with that is that's inherently a solution looking for a problem 
And this is the biggest mistake by far that we've seen among student entrepreneurs. And it kind of how I like to think about it is um, if the problem space is like a target and you're throwing darts blindly at the target, you need to, you know, you need to throw a dart, you need to check if it's hit, and then you need to learn, throw another dart, right? So I like to call it optimized learning. You need to throw the dart and as fast as you possibly can figure out if it's hit or not. And eventually, once you've learned enough, you'll hit the bullseye. Um, but the problem is if you start with a solution and look for a problem, what you do is you get married to a singular dart, right? You keep building that dart. You add aerodynamics to it. You just optimize that one dart and then you throw it and then you have no idea if it hit or not. And that's kind of how student startups fail a lot of the time. Um, so that was us all the way back then. Uh, we were really married to the solution personality in remote work. And uh, um, obviously that didn't work. We pivoted away from that completely. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how we thought about things in the very beginning um, from a customer discovery standpoint, from COVID standpoint. And uh, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. That's, that's really like the trajectory is really, it's like really inspiring and kind of fun to understand how it's <laughs> gone about. And it's very true because Mayul and I are working on something too. And we came to a point where we started thinking that, yeah, we're actually throwing darts at the dartboard and then trying to figure if it's hit the bullseye or not, rather than understanding what the bullseye is and then throwing the dart. So that makes a lot more sense coming from someone who's also been like, who's done an incubator through like tech stars. What I want to ask you when Kona comes to mind, something that really hits is that with COVID, it's not just small companies or startups that have become remote. It's even the big ones. And with so many varied cultures and organizational patterns and structures, there's a huge diversity that comes with them. How do you go about understanding those that diversity and managing that diversity through Kona? Like every team needs some kind of people. At times you need some kind of attitudes within a team. How do you deal with such attitudes when it comes to emotion, especially? Yeah, great question. Great question. So uh, two things. One, I wanted to build on uh, on your uh, previous point as well. I think one of the hardest things for us was uh, determining even whether or not the dart hit because we really, really wanted it to hit. So we kind of blind ourselves. We lied to ourselves. And uh, the slap in the face that Techstars gave us kind of uh, woke us up from that. Um, but I can talk about that more later. Um, as to your question, the answer, I, I love the question, and you're 100% right. There's so many different types of teams. There's so many different types of things, some of which that work, some of which that don't work. Um, and our answer to that question, how we deal with different personalities, is we just don't. Not now. Uh, and the reason for that is because um, we want to, we think it's better for a small group of people to love your product than it is for a wide range of people to kind of like your product. And right now, our lead qualification process is incredibly intense. We really scrutinize. We turn people away. I think last quarter, we had about, about 250 companies apply for access. And we, we accepted, I, I don't even think we accepted 50 of them. Um, just because a lot of them weren't qualified, um, we didn't think that the tool would work um, at their teams. Um, we're really laser focused on this one customer segment. And uh, we think that this is the right thing to do. Um, because you want to really laser focus on a single uh, group of early adopters before you kind of expand. Uh, that's what crossing the chasm is, you know. Um, so what that group looks like is we're looking for um, managers that already 
really believe in emotional intelligence. So we don't have to sell emotional intelligence to them. Um, and uh, teams, managers that manage teams that still aren't quite there, you know? So great managers that have not quite their teams. That's kind of the sweet spot for us. Um, regarding like multiple personalities, we've seen that Kona works mostly universally for all these types of managers and teams, um, just based off this one segment. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question as well. It does, it does. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So now that you, you're trying to explain us about the expansion that Kona is taking place, like you've had 250 people filing in and trying to get Kona and like 50, you accepted kind of 50. So there's definitely, the, the, there's definitely the aspect that you're getting traction. So how are you guys planning to uh, counter the traction that you're getting? Because like you might not have the server capacity to like handle all the 250 people or maybe the other 100 people that you that are waiting. So we had this interesting conversation in another, in another like podcast episode with uh, with one of the persons who is like, who builds stuff and he's like kind of declining 200,000, 250,000 people every day just because he does not, doesn't have the server capacity. So what is your stance on that? What is the best level to like scale rapidly so that you don't have to deny customers and people who actually need the product? Yeah, for sure. So um, right now we're doing things that don't scale before we do things that scale. Uh, we're pretty confident that our tech can handle way more people. Um, so just for context, um, what we do with all our customers, we I think we're working really closely with like 50 people total. So, um, or yeah, we're, we're like hopping on biweekly calls with them for feedback. Uh, we do a 15 minute onboarding consultation just so that they can get set up. We can convey some best practices. Um, that's when we t uh, tell them about the first three days yellow thing as well. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we're really, really high touch. We check in at one week, we check in at two weeks, and then it's bi-weekly after that. Um, so we have like full curriculum pretty much. Um, so in a sense, we're kind of like consultants. It's kind of funny. Um, so regarding how we'll handle scale, how we're thinking about it is in our onboarding consultations, in, in our check-ins and uh, our feedback calls, we're seeing ourselves say a lot of repeatable things. So things like, oh, you must put a yellow in your first three days, or you must start a conversation in the thread, or um, you must do check in with other people that are vulnerable because it, it makes them feel rewarded for something that they did, which is exactly what a gamification loop is. Um, so we tell managers to do all of that and we do it for pretty much every single manager. And right now, our goal is to take these repeatable things and make them scalable so that we don't have to spend that time to do it. So we're starting to figure out how to, uh, how to phase out these onboarding consultations, phase out these one- and two-week check-ins. Of course, the bi-weekly calls are incredibly useful for us as feedback mechanisms, but everything else is just a way for us to kind of uh, get info to other people. Um, and that's kind of how we're thinking about um, getting more and more people on the platform. We also believe as of now that revenue and users and how many people and teams are on the platform is an incredibly misleading uh, metric that we're not even tracking right now. Um, our numbers are fine and we're seeing like decent growth, but we're not focused on that at all. The only reason that we're acquiring new customers is to test the first two week onboarding experience. That's the only reason why. Um, and we really believe that 
we have an amazing group of people. We have an amazing group of managers that, that are willing to already give up so much of their time to us to help us develop this, pro uh, this project and to kind of really further this mission um, that we don't necessarily need to uh, see any insane growth to, um, to, to make a lot of insane progress. Um, so yeah, um, we're doing things that don't scale right now. And uh, we're starting to move toward a, a model that is more scalable. Well, Andrew, that brings me, when you told me about how uh, a group of managers are really getting involved in helping you build this and how you have onboarding consultation calls and weekly check-ins and stuff, how do you think once you start gaining traction and the people who come, then you have other things to manage as well. You'd want to make your platform standardized so that you don't have to get in with let's say 100 companies or 200 companies that are using your product. So how are you looking into moving into that state? Because the way I see it, something like an emotional intelligence platform, you probably do need to give your time, make some kind of, it's a very, how do I say it? It's like, it's a very small, close group. That's what, like, you have to interact with the people before they start using it and understand, make them understand what's happening. So how are you going to counter that? How are you going to make it standardized as you grow? Yeah, great question. So the simple answer is just we're taking what we think is repeatable and we're making it scalable, right? That's the whole mission right now. Um, one, uh, so one example of that is um, we just implemented a feature where Kona actually checks in with the regular green. So the very first check-in you see is Kona's check-in. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's like kind of like a customer delight, but other times it's pretty serious in the sense that like, it's a way for us to kind of, and this is an experiment still, by the way, so we don't know if this is uh, working or not. Um, but uh, this is one of those things that it's like, it's such a simple way, it's such an easy way for us to take what we say and really walk the walk. Um, and I I think that eventually, I, I believe a couple of weeks down the line, we could probably do without the onboarding consultation. Actually, we're already seeing really solid results in terms of conversions, in terms of intent from customers that are onboarding without onboarding consultations at all. So we have more people that we just kind of send the link to uh, and we just have them installed just for the sake of it. Um, and we're seeing pretty solid numbers there as well. Also something else to your point, um, and you brought uh, you brought this up, it was uh, definitely uh, really interesting, is that, um, you really need to get people to put a lot of effort in upfront for a product because um, if the manager doesn't put in work, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, so something we're actually trying out there is we're trying to figure out how to get people to invest time in it upfront without having to, you know, hop on a call with us. Because like if you hop on a 15 minute call with us, you're really high intent. You're really, you really want to get it to work. You're spending 15 minutes with us. That's like, that's a lot of time at the end of the day. And, um, you know, if we're going to do that, no touch, it's going to be kind of tough. So something we've started doing is we've started actually not even making the onboarding shorter or making it longer. So we're, uh, taking customizing and uh, we're putting it into the onboarding. So customizing their check-ins is now part of the onboarding. Um, we're doing like big, long processes to help people like really make their Kona bot like their own, um, you know, basically just. A bunch of customizations, a bunch of like calendar linking is now part of the onboarding, things like that. So um, you're, you're definitely right. Like um, 
front loading is definitely something we're, we're really thinking about right now and figuring out how to get people to invest to be higher intent uh, is uh, something that um, is really important to us. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Like now that we talk in depth about the startup that about Kona and understand like what your strategies are, I just, I was just reading about you just before we like hopped into this conversation and uh, that you interned at Apple. So what were your like all your internships and stuff like that? So what were your learnings out of those internships and like how much did it affect the way you run your startup and like, like, was there an advantage? Was it a disadvantage? What are your views about that? Well, what I learned from Apple is that I don't like working at big companies. <laughs> Plain and simple. Um, actually, I, I had a really good time at my internship. It was it was a really fun internship. I loved my boss. He was uh, or my manager. He was uh, he was the most sarcastic person I've ever met in my life. Like, I had a great time. Um, he was super nice. Um, I also got, got along with my team super well. Um, so I, I genuinely did really like my experience. But the problem was like, I was working on the Final Cut Pro team, uh, which is the video editing software. I was writing code for them. And man, the, the code base is, once I, I was walking through the hallways and um, one of my coworkers uh, brought me in, in, in his office. Um, this was back when we still had like offices and stuff. Um, and, uh, he was showing me some code and in the comment at the top, I saw like written in 2001. And I was thinking, man, this is crazy. This code was written when I was one year old. And like everyone in the office was like three times my age. You know, it, it was just not my thing. Um, I, I think I thrive more in like a, a faster paced environment. Um, I think it was really slow to get something out at Apple. Um, but here, like we'll, we'll have an experimental turnaround in 24 hours. That's kind of how we um, how we run the org. Um, we will run insane experiments and try to optimize learning for each experiment. Like that's kind of how we're thinking about our product processes at the end of the, end of the day. Like everything is an experiment. Everything can be taken out at any time. Um, and that's just totally like totally opposite of my experience at Apple. Because at Apple, it was like you have to work with the designer closely. Um, every new feature was actually a brainstorm feature. It wasn't an experiment. It wasn't really anything. Maybe it was validated, but it was like a long process to get something done. Um, you'd work closely with the designer. Features would take weeks, if not months, to get out because of how large the code base is. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, like how we run our startup right now is just very, very much the opposite of how, uh, how my experience at Apple was. That's That's like... Something that we listened here to, like, we're very interested in the lean approach, especially because that entire entrepreneurial box that's bitten us. So the lean approach, rather than doing the waterfall method where you iterate several times in within your own company before actually letting it out and not collecting feedback. I mean, collecting feedback at more larger gaps than the lean approach. So how do you think now that there's so many when you say startups and you've worked at Apple and now you're managing a product at Kona. So at times this thing, many entrepreneurs get confused is that, or oh, do we be uh, writing code? Do we need to be software engineers? Do we need to be very technical with stuff to uh, have, let's say a technical product too. What do you think about that? How's your experience been? Do you think if you didn't know very, very, 
uh, march into code and computer science, would you still be able to navigate your way through Kona and how you're managing it right now? Yeah, great question. So I strongly believe the hardest things that you'll ever do at a startup are non-technical. And that's probably going to be true for mostly any startup, actually. You know, I think, and this is kind of a tangent. Um, it's not really like strictly related to your question, but um, I'll get back to it, I promise. Um, I, I think startups are a mental game. I think it's all about where your mental state is, where your emotional state is, and how you combat your own biases. Uh, what I mean by that is um, I think the toughest period of time uh, for us was that period of time right before Techstars. So this was after we got into Techstars before we started the program. And this was us believing in our own lies in the sense that like we were telling people stats that were really impressive and they were true. Like we were saying like this was all the way back then. This is like we, we basically restarted after this, by the way. So this is not even true anymore. We were telling people like, hey, we have like 1,500 users, like XYZ stat. Like in reality, like out of those 1,500, maybe 50 of them were active on a weekly basis, not even on a daily basis. Daily was worse than that. Like it was the numbers were horrible. But at the same time, like we really believed our own lies. You know, we believe that we were killing it because we had 1,500 people. And of course, there's always that inkling of a doubt at the back of your head. It's like, are we really killing it? Like, our retention numbers are so bad. Like, what's what's going on? But like, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, like, we got that slap in the face we needed. Basically, we completely pivoted to something completely new, you know, mid-program within Techstars. It's a slow pivot, but happened nonetheless. Um, I think startups are a mental game because it's all about motivation it's all about um again fighting your own biases figuring out if xyz is the right thing to do making decisions all of that is inherently non-technical very product heavy and it's probably the most important thing you'll do as an entrepreneur i think my technical ability has helped i actually write a lot if not all of the code right now um but if i were not technical i don't think we would have you know i don't think we would have like suffer too much. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that makes sense because like we think like all startup founders are from the technical background and, and it causes a lot of problems like once you're building the product, but eventually like the tech, tech can always be uh, sought out because like they're amazing engineers and uh, scientists out there. So like you need to actually like focus on a problem rather than like, like spending a lot of time figuring the tech because like there'll be somebody who will be able to figure it out. Yeah. That, that, that's pretty interesting. So for all our like people who listen to our podcast, what is the single piece of advice right now that you have for, like aspiring founders, aspiring entrepreneurs who are at the initial stage trying to find a problem to work on? Definitely be humble. I know it's a lot easier said than done. I think we came in the mistakes we've made along the way. So I don't regret any mistakes we've made along the way because sometimes you just kind of know that you're making a mistake, but you kind of have to like suffer the consequences of the mistake before you actually learn it, you know? Um, and like, I don't regret many mistakes that we've made. I think the one thing that I regret is thinking that we knew what to do uh, or we knew that you like thinking that we knew what we were doing. And I think that's a really big like 
thing even among student entrepreneurs too, right? This is the thing around getting married to a solution. We thought that we knew the solution would work. And of course that was the wrong way to, to kind of go about things. So the best traits I think that we had that is the thing that got us into Techstars in the first place and has contributed to us raising a lot of money is the mindset that you're always learning. Um, and like, I know a lot of people can say that, but like, are you really like actually always learning? Are you actually checking your biases? You know, I think it's really easy to take what a customer says and dismiss it. Where I also think it's really easy to dismiss the wrong things or not dismiss the wrong things or, or something like that. And I, I think it's all about knowing that you don't know what you're doing until you actually talk to the people that do. And, um, for us that like, that was the biggest mistake we made in the very beginning. So, um, definitely like if there's one piece of advice, it'd be to stay humble, to, um, chase the right metrics, to learn always from the people around you and especially from your customers. That's, that's really something that like at times I won't lie, but at times when you're doing stuff that you seems that seems exciting then you're like oh i'm doing something that can actually create a change and it sometimes does like little it just gets to your head that oh i'm doing this no one else is working something as cool maybe maybe but like it really makes sense that how that affects your attitude when you're looking at when you get back doing work get back to doing work then you're like the next time your customer tells you advice you're like uh no, you just, why do I listen to me? Everything's going well. I can get that kind of uh, ideology and how the transition of thought occurs, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 